because of all these changes that are brought uh, about by climate change, uh, their life has really changed. Their life has really changed. Well, yeah, I mean, it's clear. I mean, we don't need scientific reports to tell us that there's something going on with the climate. Uh, it is telling us that we have uh, an emergency at our doorsteps. Next to rural farmers, you know, you need to really acknowledge that indigenous peoples are the most impacted by climate change. If the problem of climate change is not going to be solved uh, soon, the indigenous people uh, will perish, actually. Hello, my name is Emma Terrell, and I'm a contributor to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Today, I'm going to take you through one of the stories of climate change that you may not often hear about, and it's how climate change affects the indigenous community. We have all seen reports that climate change is accelerating at an unforeseen rate, and that we need to get to work now. And it is no secret that everyone will experience some effect related to climate change. And while arguably everyone relies on the health and the environment, we can't ignore that indigenous cultures, which are some of the oldest cultures on the planet, will be put at risk as long as the environment continues to deteriorate. This can be a complicated issue, as climate change affects different landscapes, well, differently. An indigenous community that is based on a coastline will see different impacts than those communities in the mountains. This being the case, some indigenous groups can be more resilient than others. Indigenous peoples make up 5% of the world's population, and thus making this topic and discussion incredibly large in scale. But today you'll hear from scholars and activists of indigenous rights and human rights, as well as members of the indigenous community, that will help shed more light on the subject. Each have been fighting for indigenous voices to be brought to the table to discuss how what some call our greatest challenge is affecting a population that has been on the planet the longest. people's rights since 1981 I was at the United Nations uh, as a young person at the time and so the, the indigenous peoples came to the internet as, as an international topic mm-hmm. knock, knocked at the door of the UN through the human rights agenda so that was their first big push which eventually resulted uh, in uh, the declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples after 25 years of negotiations between indigenous peoples and governments. That was Dr. Elsa Stempapulu, who is both a professor at Columbia University and directs the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights. But she has been working with indigenous peoples through the framework of the United Nations since 1981. UNESCO, otherwise known as the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, defines indigenous peoples as either, quote, tribal people in independent countries whose social, cultural, and economic conditions distinguish them from other sections of the national community and whose status is regulated wholly or partially by their own customs or traditions or by special laws or regulations. It's also defined as, quote, people in independent countries who are regarded as indigenous on account of their descent from populations which inhabited the country or geographical region to which the country belongs at the time of conquest or colonizations or the establishment of the present state boundaries and whose irrespective of their legal status retain some or all of their own social, economic, cultural, and political institutions. Now, I mentioned earlier that indigenous people make up 5% of the global population. However, according to the United Nations, they make up 15% of the world's extreme poor. 
This can be tied back to the history of oppression towards indigenous communities as they have been pushed off their land by colonizing powers and isolated to smaller areas, such as reservations you see in the United States. Now just a quick step back to talk about the science of it all. According to NASA, 17 of the warmest years on record have all taken place since 2001, in addition to human-caused climate change, which has contributed to and will continue to contribute to more intense storms, droughts, and natural disasters. The Center for Climate Energy Solutions said that scientists expect a, quote, 2 to 11 percent increase in average maximum wind speed in storms. And with the overall temperature rising, there is even a greater risk for drought. All of these changes have the ability to greatly alter the land and what the land is capable of achieving for indigenous peoples. But once the indigenous community came to the attention of the UN through the human rights agenda, it was then time to come to the international stage in terms of climate change. And that was in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. It was the first time that the indigenous peoples were allowed to speak in the front of the United Nations and, of course, in the front of the, the presidents of the world. So, not before any, uh, I mean, the United Nations didn't recognize uh, the importance of, of indigenous uh, peoples and the importance of their lands and the biodiversity and, and the biocultural diversity that they, that they have into their territories. So, it was the first time that they were allowed to speak about uh, how to protect the planet. That was Jose Perano, an anthropologist from Land is Life, who works with the indigenous communities in Latin America. This 1992 UN Earth Summit in Rio was a turning point toward recognizing what indigenous peoples could offer toward the effort to protect the Earth, and how they could offer this through traditional knowledge, otherwise known as the knowledge that is accumulated from living on and living off the land for hundreds of years and generations. The indigenous people had a lot to contribute to the effort to protect the environment, which may as well be fitting, because they had almost everything to lose. The biggest problem we are having right now in this world is that people have lost their connection to the sacred. And it's not some great, mysterious, native-only thing that people make it out to be. That was Candy Mossett, the Native Energy and Climate Campaign Director to the organization called Indigenous Environmental Network. Candy grew up on the Fort Worthold Indian Reservation in North Dakota as a member of the Mandan, Hitchcock, and Arikara tribes, commonly referred to as the MHA Nations. A major way climate change can affect indigenous communities differently than it does other communities is by affecting the land that is used for cultural rituals. And by this, it is affecting and diminishing the culture of indigenous peoples, which, like I've said, are some of the oldest cultures in existence. Sacred plants that we used to use aren't growing anymore or they're being destroyed. And then there's extinction events going on in the animal populations, all of which can't be ignored. We have like seven endangered species on the list now in North Dakota, and We're seeing a mass extinction in general on the planet. And always in indigenous thought processes, there was this connection of what happens to the animals happens to us. There's no escaping it. I mean, it's obvious. If if they're dying off, they're dying off for a reason. And just because we might be bigger and might, you know, be able to take it a little bit longer, we need to be cognizant and aware of that and then fix it and change it. Um, and in our, in our indigenous communities, it's, it's a loss of culture that's been intentional over the years. You know, we were, we went through a whole termination era. We are considered the Indian problem. We still are. It's not like we went away. It's- and this loss of culture that Candy was discussing is not something that is isolated to just her indigenous community. It's affecting every community across the world. But part of the complexity of it is that it affects indigenous cultures in a very different way because every culture is different, just like every environment is different. 
Casey Box is the director of Land is Life and has traveled all over the world to meet with indigenous peoples to find out what they're struggling with in their communities. Well, I think indigenous peoples are incredibly resilient and for that they're able to adapt fairly easy. That being said, their cultures are deeply rooted in practices that have been brought down from generations of traditional knowledge for hundreds of years. And when your culture is tied to your environment, climate change will cause your centuries-old environment to change. This is the case for Jemima Karingi. Jemima is a member of the Maasai Indigenous Community in southern Kenya. She is also the Land is Life Africa Senior Regional Coordinator. But for Jemima, while the drought hurts the season of cultural practices and the plants associated with them, it will also have an effect on the local economy, especially for communities like the Maasai community in Kenya that are heavily centered on agriculture and livestock. Droughts in Kenya have swept away much of the livestock for the Maasai community, which is crushing their local economy. They have their traditional calendar or on when to perform certain cultural practices that they practice on only certain uh, periods of time during the year. For example, right now it's December, so it's a time for the Maasai community to do a lot of circumcision ceremonies for boys or initiation ceremonies for boys. So they have uh, plants that they depend from the bush. But because the rain has been limited, it's hard for them to get these plants that they use to perform um, these cultural practices. Uh, for example, last year there was a, a, a drought that really hit the, almost the whole country, and Kenya was experiencing this drought. So the Maasai community were really affected. There were individuals who won um, thousands of, um, of livestock, but uh, the drought came and swept them away. They remain without nothing uh, to, to, to depend on. And with the instability of the rain season, Jemima said the farmers also have a more difficult time determining when to plant and when not to plant the crops that support their community and livelihood. If you subscribe to a natural calendar for your community and the nature supporting the calendar changes, what do you do? is the health when we're talking about climate change. Health, uh, it's been affected and it's going to be more and more affected uh, with years if, if, if we don't change our habits of consume, consumism and a wasted of resources and water. Uh, for example, uh, with the floods in the Amazon, there's extreme events like a huge, huge rain that we didn't have in this season of the year, you know. So it, it, the, the river floats, the lagoons floats, and now there's a lot of sicknesses because they are surrounded by oil workers with a lot of sicknesses like a yellow fever, dengue, uh, chikungunya, and others uh, that those are kind of new kind of fevers. And of course, the, the shamans, the traditional knowledge, they don't have enough uh, plants or medicines to protect the community from these aggressive fevers, for example. Uh, remember that the, the calls, I mean, kills millions of persons in the Americas when the conquerors arrive from Europe. But this happened at the same right now. The World Health Organization states that climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year between 2030 and 2050. These deaths may be the result of malaria, malnutrition, and other diseases. For Candy Mosset, this statistic has been a reality. There is a history of oil drilling or attempts of oil production on Indian reservations, Standing Rock being one prominent example. 
Now, the Standing Rock example is also known as the No DAPL, or No Dakota Access Pipeline protests, which attracted global attention as protesters gathered around Cannonball, North Dakota, to voice their outrage at the construction of an oil pipeline. The pipeline was to run through the Standing Rock Reservation, and the possibility of an oil spill would pose greater risk to the quality of the waterways in the area, and to the surrounding Native American groups that were living off this land. And while oil drilling is not a result of climate change, oil drilling has a history of damaging the environment around it. While there have been some opportunities for the MHA nations to profit off this oil production, as did MHA Energy, there are still some people like Candy who, in living this close to a reservation, had some serious consequences. It was when I was in college that I myself was diagnosed with cancer. I was diagnosed, diagnosed with a stage 4 sarcoma tumor. It was, it's a really aggressively growing tumor, a rapidly spreading tumor. For me, it was in my subcutaneous tissue on my stomach, which is basically it was in my fat, and I could feel it. I felt the lump. And it had grown from pea size to walnut size in the course of a week. And even though I had gone into Indian Health Service, as soon as I discovered it, they wouldn't give me a referral, and that was the only type of insurance I had. I didn't have any other kind of health insurance. I was going to college, and I couldn't get any help because now this was considered a pre-existing condition, and they wouldn't cover any kind of pre-existing conditions. So I remember just, like, falling my head off for a while after that doctor's appointment, and like I said, six days later I went back. The thing had grown from pea size to walnut size. The doctor took one look at it. He gave me a referral. So I ended up going to the Ultra Clinic, the Ultra Hospital in Grand Forks, North Dakota, because that's where I was going to school. And I had a surgery. They removed it. And this happened all the time. Um, I have friends that have died from cancers that were my same age, you know, that left kids behind. Um, I have a lot of people in my family that had cancer that they battled against and won. Prostate cancers, testicular cancers in men. People with brain cancer, I know, that survived, and then there's folks that didn't. And so, to me, it was just like, okay, like my turn, you know, or something. And <clears throat> I started realizing then that it wasn't normal. People were like, holy God, I don't know that many people with cancer. Why do you, you know? And I was thinking, I don't know. And it turned out it's because of where I grew up, on a reservation. So indigenous territories are sacred. Those are not trash fields. There is no coincidence between the areas of fossil fuel extraction often occur in minority locations. For example, these areas are often referred to as sacrifice zones. An article in the Environmental Health Perspectives Journal describes sacrifice zones as areas of low income and minority communities that are prone to chemical pollution, such as the pollution that exists from fossil fuel extraction. A 2007 Toxic Waste and Race at 20 study found that minority communities make up 56% of those communities within two miles of hazard waste facilities. This is often referred to as environmental racism and can be used to explain why Indian reservations fall into these sacrifice zone categories. Now, while there are many reasons to protect the rights and lands for indigenous peoples, one important statistic is... And 4 to 5% of the world's population is home to 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. They walk across the territory, they have their traditional trace into the territory, so they have been walking in those territories for thousands of years in some cases. And they are taking some plants and moving to another medicinal food, fruits, uh, or building houses. And so they create a lot of diversity into their territories. That's right. 5% of the population safeguards 80% of the world's biodiversity. 
What this basically means is that 80% of the world's biodiversity coincides with the land occupied by indigenous peoples, which, as we mentioned before, make up 5% of the global population. Therefore, by allowing indigenous peoples to live on the land and use their cultural practices that help them maintain their environment, they're also protecting the biodiversity that exists around them. When climate changes, it requires the ecosystems to shift and biodiversity will be altered as well. It is all connected, and it is the indigenous peoples who can assist in protecting this land and this biodiversity. But in order for that to occur, indigenous peoples need to stay on the land that they are connected to and the land where they possess this traditional knowledge. And even with the best intentions, this sometimes doesn't happen. As listeners of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, you are well-versed in the nuances of land conservation, especially when it comes to protecting an area home to rare species or incredible phenomenon. But often, the traditional ideology of land conservation was not in favor for the indigenous communities. Monte Mills is a professor of the Alexander Blewett III School of Law at the University of Montana and is the co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic, where he does legal work for Indian tribes across Montana. The roots of the the modern conservation movement, and in many ways the roots of the modern environmental movement, are based on this idea of conservation that erases indigenous presence from the land, and that you know brings in a lot of other factors of history that sort of played into the separation of Indian people from the idea of America or the separation of Indian people from um, what we consider a natural landscape. But that's just not accurate as a matter of history. As a matter of fact, there were always Indian people here and they were always on the landscape engaged in a relationship with the natural world um, that was far different, I think, than the, uh, the the sort of conservation movement or the conservation ethos that grew up in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And yeah, I mean, I think if you look back to the 90s when the traditional ideas of conservation were around of, you know, fencing off lands, mm-hmm. creating parks and reserves, those are proven not to be the most effective way if your goal is conservation. It's if you're not going to involve the actual people that are living there, would have been stewards of those environments, mm-hmm. then you're not going to have a positive impact on your conservation goals. What Monty and Casey just mentioned is kind of like the catch-22 of environmental conservation and indigenous cultural protection. This catch-22 was illustrated in the 2016 report of the Special Rapporteur of the Human Rights Council on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Land conservation and indigenous rights have a history of coming to conflict with each other, especially in game reserves and land set aside for wildlife preservation. An example of this, which was mentioned in this report, was the case of the Android Welfare Council versus Kenya. This case of the Human Rights Council stated that, quote, the rights of the Indoroi had been violated when they were denied access to their traditional lands after the lands were turned into a game reserve in 1973. This case took place through the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, and the commission found that while their land did become a game reserve, that the, quote, Indoroi were its ancestral guardians and thus best equipped to maintain its delicate ecosystem. That the most difficult seminar I have to give in my class, which is on Indigenous people's rights, is when I talk about the environment. Why? Because students, the young generation today, and everybody's environmentalist, people are very sensitized, and that's wonderful. But the class also has taught them about 
indigenous people's rights and this, the injustices, the historic and current injustices. So the, this particular seminar, when we talk about this, brings, they, they are so conflicted and they suffer to see. We are all sad to see. And this Catch-22 has multiple layers when considering countries like Botswana, where travel and tourism was expected to make up 8.5% of Botswana GDP by 2017, most of which is wildlife tourism, as Botswana has some of the strictest wildlife protection policies in the world, including a shoot-on-site policy for poachers. This policy is designed to deter poaching, but in doing so, it is clearing the land of the sand bushmen, which is one of the indigenous groups in Botswana. An LA Times article from 2015 talks about the Bushmen in Botswana being evicted from the Central Kalahari Game Reserve in 2002 by the Botswanan government having their well sealed and barring them from hunting on the land. This article was published just weeks after the government extended a hunting ban to protect the country's wildlife, which includes elephants, lions, buffalo, and rhinos. This in turn made it difficult for the Bushmen to survive as their cultural use of the land often involved hunting. You cannot remove people from their lands, which are theirs. It's their ancestral lands uh, in the name of conservation. You have to talk to the people and ensure, because first of all, they are the ones who preserve very well, you know. And uh, if they need to do something else for conservation, in any case, talk together. Right. That's the point. Because what we have... We have really noticed, I mean, over the years of being in, involved in this topic, that time and again the following thing has happened. An area has been an, um, uh, demarcated as a conservation area. Few years go by, indigenous fields are removed, few years go by, and miraculously, then extractives come in. What it comes down to is protecting the rights established in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights for Indigenous Peoples, was adopted by the UN in 2007. Two important rights in this declaration are the right to self-determination, which means indigenous peoples should not be dealt with like anonymous peasants. No, they are cohesive communities with their own governance systems. And the right to free and prior informed consent which is when when a community is well informed and able to guide the discussion and the chance that they want to talk about a potential project big or small that might impact their livelihoods that those indigenous communities themselves develop the terms on which those discussions go about what it comes down to is the discussion the discussion of what to do going forward that the indigenous community wants to be included in there have been some steps in this direction, such as including indigenous peoples into discussions for traditional knowledge purposes. But as far as moving forward to protecting indigenous peoples' rights, there is a consensus on what the next steps need to be. The next steps are really the continued recognition and, and the continued opening up of space for uh, ensuring that tribal leaders and tribal voices, tribal members, are and making their claims heard. At, at the end of this remarkable private meeting with uh, CEOs of the environmental, the major environmentalist organizations, they asked me, they said, well, if you wanted to leave us 
just with one sentence of a message, what would you say? And I said, talk to the people. They are suffering the effects of climate change, but of course the answers for climate change has not been uh, consulted by the government to indigenous peoples. And there's a lot of traditional knowledge that has, has been dealing with climate changes for generations. But I really wanted uh, to ask if the indigenous people can always be part of a uh, problem solving like climate change because we believe that climate change is a huge problem in respecting the indigenous people. So I'm really uh, just, in, 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 uh, how can I say it? I'm requesting if they can always be included uh, in decision making of climate change uh, globally. This is an incredibly complex issue and each one of these bullet points could be a whole book, not to mention just its own podcast episode. But as climate change becomes an even more immediate security and environmental issue, it is also becoming a cultural issue. My name is Emma Terrell, and thank you for listening. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. This episode was produced by myself, Emma Terrell, and the music was created by Les Hayden. I would like to give a special thanks to the Wild Lens team for their assistance, as well as to all the experts in Indigenous people's voices you heard on this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.